Hello, this is Rod Allen. And this is John Almeida. And this is Free Range Humans, a place where we consider how to make schools fit for human consumption. Today we wanted to have on Lillian Sue and Chris Lehman to talk about schooling during the pandemic and where we should be headed next year and beyond. Lillian and Chris are two of the best school leaders I know. Lillian runs Latitude High in Oakland and Chris Science Leadership Academy in Philadelphia. Lillian and Chris, welcome. Thanks so much. So uh, Lillian, why don't we uh, start with you? Um, can you tell us a little bit about how your year has gone uh, at Latitude High in Oakland and to the degree that things have gone well, uh, I'm presuming that, uh, what, what do you think, uh, accounts for that? Sure. So we've been fully in distance learning since last March, April, um, the county that we're in and also the particular zip code that we're in within our county in California has been one of the hardest hit in terms of COVID rates in the state. And so, um, despite hopes to the contrary, we've been fully online for more than a year now. And I think that what I've been really delighted unexpectedly by is just how adaptive and nimble and creative and fun our staff have continued to be during this year. And I think I really attribute that to several things, right? I think one is, even before the pandemic, we've really held sacred the um, daily meeting time that we have as a team. And so our students have always come to school at nine, but our staff meet every day, you know, from eight to 8.45. And so I feel like that sacred time that we've had as an adult community has really gotten us through this year because that's been the space where we have cried together, where we, you know, celebrate together, where we share, share ideas together and brainstorm, um, dilemma consultancies, right? So that sort of um, adult culture piece, right? Which I think was always strong pre-pandemic and we always felt was valuable in some ways we really doubled down on that during this year. And I think that's been crucial, not just to get us through, but to also still feel really connected and tethered together as a team and to still have that sense of like creative joy and, and energy that's really allowed us to thrive. Chris, I saw you uh, nodding as Lillian was talking about her adult time in the morning. Do you have something similar or was this sort of adult culture piece important? We have a weekly, so we have two hours every Wednesday afternoon as a staff, and I think the same thing is true, right? Like, and it is, um, I think it's been an incredibly important sort of centering time for us. It is a time where we, um, you know, kind of own the moment, I would say, as much as anything else. And the way I always have described that time for us is it's when we take apart and put the school back together every week, right? Like, and there's always a piece of the puzzle, like what are we talking about today? What are we doing today? And I think for us, it gave us space and time to be really thoughtful about what we were trying to do. And it gave us time, you know, we always say like be one school, whatever you want for adults, whatever you want for kids, you gotta want for adults, whatever space, whatever you value for kids, you gotta value for adults. And so for us, um, that's when we engage in the core values, right? Like that's our inquiry time, that's our collaboration time, that's our reflection time. And this year more, you know, as much as any other. And again, for us, we've been stretched very much to the breaking point in many ways, because this is year two of complete disruption. Um, we spent last year moving into a new, into a refurbished building that was going to be a co-location with another school. 
And anytime you co-locate, that's going to be a challenge, right? Two very, you know, two different cultures. And then just when you had that, it started the pandemic hit. That's right. And so this is two years of complete disruption. So I wish I could say, I, I, I am, I am in awe. I mean, I'll say this: I am in awe of our community. Um, I am in awe of the way students have stayed uh, positive and uh, game for whatever, and have made the best of it. I am in awe of the energy and creativity and resilience of the educators. Um, but I, you know, but we're tired. <laughs> is the easiest way to say that. I hear you. So maybe Lillian, I'll turn back to you for a second. What does a project-based inquiry-oriented school look like in an online space? Yeah. I mean, I think that we still believed in doing projects and doing inquiry, even when we were online. And in some ways, I think being project-based allowed us to adapt to the online space more easily, right? Because you, you, you at the core of being a project-based teacher is really thinking about what is it that motivates kids, right? Like what's your driving sense of purpose? And I think this year more than any other has forced us to really think about actually what really matters, right? And what our students are gonna be excited about through this weird virtual space. And so I think that, um, you know, this year we've in, in, this, in our science classes, right? We still have had students do kind of hands-on design um, 3D modeling. We had our uh, physics teacher after students kind of designed their uh, 3D models, they found they were able to print them all out and then deliver them to the kids' homes, right? And, and then play with all different kinds of supplies for them to still have a kind of tangible hands-on experience. So in our science classes, you know, all those design and build elements, we were still able to make happen. And then I think that in our humanities classes, you know, our, our teachers really tapped into what are those big themes that are going to really matter to our kids this year, particularly in ninth grade for our students who've never met each other in person. Like, what does it mean to build community during this time, right? So our first big project of the year was called um, Noche Galactica, where students were writing stories about their Poeta identities and um, really sharing their origin stories and then um, kind of publishing a magazine together that really um, shared a lot of these vulnerable stories that allowed them to get to know each other in this virtual space, right? And um, we ended up doing an exchange between our school and a school in Shenzhen, China, where they had also written identity stories, right? And were able to have the students read pieces to each other across this weird international Zoom space. Um, and then, you know, our students still did our big signature ninth grade project that's around interviewing change makers in our community and really studying um, issues of homelessness that are were exacerbated this year by the pandemic, right? And so I think that, you know, um, I would say that in many ways, um, some of them were kind of new projects that we invented for this year, but some of them were projects that we were able to adapt and really figure out like what was the connection point for this year that would still get kids fired up about that. So in many ways, I guess, in some ways, the project-based piece was the one that felt most intuitive in terms of adapting online. Yeah, and that really resonates. I, for what we did, I mean, it was interesting. So at every phase of the last two years, what we have said over and over again is what is essential SLA, right? What is the essentialist version of our model look like? And for us, you know, there's sort of two schools, two sort of 
overpowering ideas that, that inform everything we do. First is the notion of an inquiry-driven education, our five core values, inquiry, research, collaboration, presentation, reflection, uh, and then the idea of the ethic of care, right? As, you know, and the notion, and, and the notion that um, we teach students before we teach subjects. And what we have fallen back on at each iteration of how this has gone is what do those things mean online? And how do you do that online? So for example, one of the hallmarks of SLA is we have a four-year advisory program um, you know, kids and, and their advisors stay together all four years. And we changed our schedule when we went online. So that way, instead of having advisory class meet twice a week, we leveraged what it meant to be not all in the same space in that we could use time a little bit differently. And we had one whole advisory class a week. But then we also said that the band at the end of the day from three to four, um, every advisor was gonna have on the, on the other days of the week, was gonna have 15 minute one-on-ones with their advisees every single week. So we made sure that every single kid had a 15 minute one-on-one with their advisor every single week as a check-in point. And then I think now we're in a place of saying like, what did we learn, right? From two years of trauma that forced us to lean so deeply onto, into our model. Um, what did we learn about the model that we may not have learned had we not had to deal with this? Chris, you're anticipating my, my next question. Um, we often talk about the pandemic, um, or periods of other disruption as you've described with the lack of facility and moving around and so on. Um, we, we look at those from a very negative place, uh, that, you know, the, the issues that we've had with the system get magnified during, during something like the pandemic equity issues and, and a whole variety of things that, that not necessarily new things cropping up, but things cracks in the system that have always been there get magnified. You've both identified positive things, uh, that have, um, that you have had to go back and rely on your strengths and your core values and, and make sure that you're rock solid on, on those things. What leadership lessons can you take or can, can you describe to us from, um, a, as leaders during this time, trying to make sure that, uh, the core values stay central to, to the work in your schools, uh, and that the schools are staying true to those, to those values and not being distracted, uh, by the pandemic. Yeah, I mean, I think that connecting what you said with what Chris was speaking to before, there was just so much in what you just said, Chris, that resonated with me. I think first and foremost around the ethos of care, because I think this year, like it's really stripped bare, like what really is a school? And at the end of the day, for us, it's a community of like deep care where we can be nimble and adaptive about what that looks like. And it can take many forms, but without that ethos of care, we're, we're nothing, right? And so I think that one big leadership lesson that I think we've really taken away, especially in the first few months of the pandemic, we were doing a lot of delivery of supplies across the city, right? We did this pizza party where all the kids, you know, like um, all baked pizza through advisory. And so we were delivering pizza kids all around the city and, and advisors are getting to kids' houses. We did pumpkin carving, you know, for Halloween. So we delivered a pumpkin to every kid. But those things, I think it started from an ethos of care, but the lesson that we took away, particularly for so many of the advisors, was how eye-opening it was to see where all our kids lived across the city, the really different conditions in which they were sheltering in place, and getting a really up-close look, right, at, um, you know, just where our kids' homes and neighborhoods were, and 
having that be a different kind of sort of visceral understanding of our students in a way that we may not have had before, right? Because obviously, you know, we, we do home visits, you know, even pre-pandemic and we connect with families a lot, but I think there was just a different level of intimacy that we got this year in terms of sort of connecting to our students' home lives in a different way and a different, you know, just because we really cared about just efficient communication this year, like, you know, using text, using whatever form of communication it would take to get through to families and kids. I feel more deeply connected in some ways as a leader to, to families and to students. And I think for our advisors too, um, I think that before this year, you know, advisors, all of our teachers love being teachers. Not everybody always loves being an advisor, right? But this year, I think that folks really doubled down on what it meant to be a, to be an advisor and to really take responsibility for this group of kids. And, and part of that is getting to know them in ways that under normal circumstances, sort of, we may not see some of those invisible pieces, right? And so I think those are definitely some of the big leadership lessons for me. And then I think the third thing I would just say, Rod, around kind of a big lesson for me this year is just, you know, how, again, how creative people can be under really strange constraints, right? And then, like, how do you support that and let that grow and bloom in all sorts of strange ways um, that ultimately are really beautiful? And so I think there was still a lot of joy and beauty that came out of this year that I'm so grateful for. And I think uh, really reaffirms for us, like, how connected we are as a team and makes us even more excited to be back in person together. Next year. Chris, before you pick up on that, as I suspect there's a lot of resonance with what Lillian said, um, can we talk a little bit about this um, ethic of care? I mean, Chris, earlier you said one of your core values was that you teach students and not subjects. Um, you know, I think it was Debbie Meyer who said at one point, you know, the best education we offer is in kindergarten and graduate school, because that's where things are small and people get known and are doing purposeful activities and so forth. Um, and I, you know, there's that, that old saw that, you know, elementary school teachers care about kids and high school or college teachers care about subjects or something like that. Um, what, what, what's, what's wrong with us? Like, why is it that as kids get older, we think that care is a less important value. I mean, kids get more complicated, more things have happened to them. They're more likely to face serious loss, um, other competing commitments and difficulties in life. Like, wh why don't we take that seriously? Like, why does it take a pandemic to help us realize that? So, I mean, I think there's a lot of answers to that, right? And, um, you know, and, you know, you always win when you quote Debbie. So good job. So I think a lot of things, I think number one, we, it is the fact, you know, like it is the, whether it's the exactly a factory model that was based on, but it's this specialist model of high school education where we say, you have to teach this subject, you teach this subject, you teach this subject. So in, in most schools, you know, like, you know, a typical high school teacher is going to have 150 kids on their roster. You can't, and, you know, and there's no guarantee that they will see them, you know, in, a, in an urban setting you know, maybe not in a suburban setting, but in an urban setting, you know, um, and you may never teach that kid after you teach them that first year, right? You can't authentically ask people to have caring relationships that are, you know, that are, you can ask them to care about, but you can't ask them to care for when they're seeing, when there's not the space in the schedule to do that, 
right? We value what we schedule, right? Like Diana Loffenberg, who I think Jal, you've met, um, and you know, she she was a teacher at SLA, and and she and I co-founded Inquiry Schools together. Um, she is a she is the master scheduling guru. She's no one is better at it, and she loves to say like, "Show me your master schedule, and I'll tell you what you value." And so I think that that's a big piece of it is that we carve up the day not just for kids, but for adults in a way that does not give them the time to say, my job is to take care of you. My job is to be here for you. And my job is to be here for you over time. Um, and you know, there's always been exceptions. And again, let's be clear here. There are always teachers who do that work, right? There's always, the drama teacher who's at school at rehearsal until 9 p.m. and knows every kid. There's always the coach who gives the kid the ride home. There's always, there's always the teacher whose lunch, whose classroom at lunch is full of kids. But that's by fiat, not by system. Right? That's you get lucky. You were, you were the point guard. You were, you know, you were whatever. Um, we what we need to fundamentally do, and I think you know, and you heard it with what Lillian said, with what I said. Both were like, "Well, here's what we do with our advisory, right? Like we have systems in place that fundamentally carve time for adults to care for children." And what the 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 and, and the what the wonderful thing about advisory is this. And we invest an incredible amount of our professional development. What does it mean to be a good, good advisor? We lean into advisory even before pre-pandemic. Everything is, how do we solve the problem through advisory? That is your primary relationships. Um, that really is like, oh, there's, you know, kids are having an issue. You've got to work it through the advisor, everything. Like, that's how we do it. Um, and we do a lot of work to what does it mean to be a good advisor? And because, you know, to Lillian's point, teachers aren't taught how to be good advisors. So taught how to be good subject matter teachers, right? Like, and they love being teachers, but they don't necessarily know how to be great advisors, but they have to be. Um, and so for us, um, building that out as the primary relationship, building everything through that, and then really holding that sacred, um, that's a game changer. And, and again, so many of the progressive schools, so many of the schools that I love and respect in this country, they have advisories and they have real advisories and they have, and they don't let them be home, right? They don't let them devolve into home. Brad, maybe I'll come to you next. What, what, what do you think about this question of care as students get older? Well, I think it's, it's a great question. It's, it's easier. And I'm, I'm, I'm channeling a, a principal colleague of mine, um, from a district I worked in lately, uh, recently, who, who said our, our job as secondary principals is to love all the kids, even those who make it very difficult, and even those who actively don't want us to, but desperately need us to. That, that's, as Chris was saying, that's hard work um, uh, to do that. It, it, it's perhaps easier or uh, certainly more expected, but easier at elementary when kids like to hug and they, and they run in and they, you know, they like to see their teacher every day and come to school. And, and yet when they really, really, really need those relationships, um, at, at secondary, it's, uh, it's, it's harder work. Uh, and I agree with Chris, uh, I think the structures get in the way, um, 
in British Columbia, when we brought in all the new curriculum, uh, every teacher was part of their, their job for, for everybody. Everybody was responsible for addressing the competencies, uh, how we want kids to, to be in the world. And we would hear from people, well, you know, I teach 160 kids a semester. How, how am I supposed to help them develop competencies? Um, don't see 160 kids a semester. That's a change the schedule. There, there's no law. That didn't come down on a tablet from heaven saying thou shalt have uh, six blocks or seven blocks a day. Um, and we saw and we're seeing uh, schools beginning to shift that. And certainly during the pandemic, uh, that's accelerated that because we've been asked to be in pods here. And so to reduce the number of, of, cause we've stayed in school this entire time. Uh, we haven't shut schools down up here. Um, that to reduce the number of contacts, uh, you know, it's about uh, 55 or 60 kids in elementary and it's about a hundred in, in secondary. That's all the human beings that should be interacting on a, on a regular basis. So it's forced potting or grouping or clustering of, 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 uh, of classes and um, and that's causing teachers to work collectively more and to get to know their kids way better. So um, I, I think it's just harder. Yeah, I'll, I'll build on that. I think that for me, I think it actually goes back to what do we privilege in terms of the kinds of learners that we want to see in a school and how are we imposing as adults our sense of like where the outcomes that we want for kids and, and who we want them to grow into. And I think at the high school level in particular, you can feel a sense of urgency that we only have four years with them. And so we have to cram all this knowledge into them. And I think that in some ways for us at Latitude, we're in some ways the love child of high tech high and big picture learning, right? And big picture learning is all about one student at a time. And high tech high's found what co-founder Rob Reardon always says, be the one who notices right? That's his mantra. And we've really taken that um, in terms of how we really live our work at Latitude. And so Rob I- Rob is so wise. Rob is so wise, right? Always. He's always our North Star. And so I think it's really about like genuinely at your core, do you really believe that, um, you know, ultimately it's not about imposing a specific way of being at your school or specific outcome that you want for every kid and more really believing that you're supporting every kid to reach their greatest potential and whatever round they most want to make an impact in. And so if you really believe that and you have a staff that really believes that, then there are multiple paths to get there. Right. And I, and I think that actually taking the time to know each child deeply and understand what motivates them and and to care about then like you know how to support them in getting there but in a really unique individual way right i think part of what's hard is that um I think a lot of schools operate from the from the sense of like we need to fill them up as opposed to starting from like what do they want in life and how do we help them get there that's right and and, and to that end a great way to think about that or the way that we like to think about it is you know it's funny when we started the school in 2006 we thought we had two parallel tracks of the way we thought about things, right? There was the academic model, which was inquiry-driven, project-based, and then there was the ethic of care. How do we take care of the children? What I would say our greatest learning was and is, uh, is how linked those two things are. Inquiry without care is incredibly uh, clinical and care without inquiry is incredibly paternalistic. And so there are three, well, one of the ways that we like to think about it is kids are our inquiry project, right? Like, and there's three questions we never know the answer to. Uh, and that's, what do you think? 
How do you feel? What do you need? And we should ask those questions as often as we possibly can, right? And, you know, think about what it would mean to go to a school where you were asked those questions frequently and the people who asked them listened deeply, openly, honestly, and then acted with you to, to, to respond to those and to create the conditions that allowed you to grow based on your own answers, right? Like, and there are three very, very simple questions, right? What do you think? How do you feel? What do you need? I love those questions. Um, there's been a lot of conversation around uh, equity in the last few years, sparked by George Floyd's murder and Black Lives Matter and a bunch of other things. But in education, a lot of that for, you know, from roughly 2001 up to maybe 2015, a lot of that was around test scores. So the notion of equity was, you know, equalizing uh, test scores across races or classes or whatever it was. And I'm hearing in what you're saying, kind of a, a, a different vision of what it means to be uh, equitable. And I'm wondering if um, you might describe a little bit of what equity means to you. Maybe we should start with Lillian this time. That's a big question, Jaw. Um, I think that, so I, I'll, I'll work my way through it. I think that for me, when we started Latitude, and, and I, I think part of my story with Latitude is that I started as a teacher in Oakland, right, way back in 2003, and then sort of left Oakland a little bit kicking and screaming because my husband got a job down in San Diego. So landed totally unexpectedly at High Tech High and then fell in love with High Tech High, but always knew I was going to come back to Oakland and put down roots, right? But in starting Latitude, I thought a lot about my early years teaching in Oakland. Um, I was at a school, startup school, that was really focused on um, just getting first generation high school graduates to go on to college and this dream that like we just get you to college right like we will have closed the opportunity gap and sort of set you on the path towards the American dream and that hasn't really panned out right it has for some kids but it really hasn't for others and I followed a lot of those alums from my early year um, and I, so I think that particularly for me here in the Bay Area, we're in such a, such an interesting space, right? Like we're kind of sandwiched between all the progressivism of Oakland and Berkeley, and then Silicon Valley is just like right across the Bay from us with all this. It feels like, like in many ways when you're in the heart of deep East Oakland and then you're in Menlo Park or in Cupertino, it's like you're in two different universes, right? And so for me, when we started Latitude, it really was this question of, you know, there's so much interesting opportunity in terms of what happens in the Bay Area and what creative adults get to do with their lives and be able to make a living doing that. And so how do we expand our students' sense of possibility to like dream big in terms of, because how can you dream of a job you've never heard of, right? And so I think that first and foremost, that sense of exposure on a really kind of tangible first-hand basis so students get a sense of all the opportunities that exist but then how do we get them there right like how do we actually um if, if a kid says like i want to be an animator at pixar or if another kid says i want to you know have my own architecture studio how do we support them to get there you know and and be able to help them navigate those journeys whatever that is right so for me it's ultimately about opportunity, but in expanding sort of students, not just hopes around that and those aspirations, though that's like the first step, but then also how do we, in a really tangible way, help them to navigate those journeys to get there? And that is part of the equity question for me. There's so many other aspects of it, but I would say that's one of the fundamentals behind why we started our school. 
And, you know, so yes, and right, like all of that. And for me, what that oftentimes manifests is as agency, right? Like for me, what I hope going to SLA helps our students to do is to become fully actualized, realized citizens of the world, right? And like, what does it mean to own your space in the world? And uh, I don't mean own in sort of this weird capitalistic ownership kind of sense, but like in this real sort of like, I, I can walk through the world and I can be a change agent and I can do the things I need to do. So, um, you know, to do that, you have to have an, uh, an education and a school that a schooling system, hopefully, that allows kids to learn how to tap into that agency. Well, that's inquiry, right? Um, that is, how do you ask big questions? How do you seek out answers? How do you work with others to make those answers better? I and mean, how do you create artifacts of your learning that are real and authentic and matter in the world? How do you step back and learn from what you've done? How do you see yourself as a member of a community? How do you see yourself as a member of larger communities? How do you see yourself as understanding the need for economic independence? Um, how do you see yourself as a change agent in the world? So that way you're not just you understand what it means to be part of a larger community and not, not just for yourself, but for others. Um, and it's that whole sense. And, um, you know, all of that, seeing kids who can then walk through the world, um, I think is really powerful. Um, you know, there's a whole other side of equity, which is kind of ridiculous insofar as we've spent a lot of time focusing on a very, very, very narrow definition. But for me, equity has also meant the way we fund our schools. You know, Philadelphia is stark because literally on the other side of City Line Avenue, it's not the starkness of the world, the adults that we all live in is not quite as stark as Silicon Valley to, to Oakland. That is a... Um, I'm trying to think of a nice way to say that it doesn't involve profanity, a mind messer, you can think of the word I might have said, that I can't even, like, that's just, I mean, New York City, teaching New York, we saw the same thing, right? Like, you, South Bronx to Wall Street was very similar, but even that, not the same. But, you know, in Philadelphia, literally, if you're on the other side of City Line Avenue, one child on one side of City Line Avenue will have $150,000 spent more on their publicly funded education than a child on the other side. You know, this, that's, that's the difference between over a K-12 education, between funding in Lower Marion, which is the wealthy suburb on the other side of City Line Avenue, and the city. That's not equity. That's, that's not. You give me $10,000 extra per kid per year, and oh my goodness. So there was a study done at Penn a few years ago uh, by a researcher who said, actually, if you control for um, population and like issues of how, you know, number of students in poverty, number of students with special needs, that, you know, and all of the different things, and then control for um, how much money per child we spend, Philadelphia outkicks its coverage. Philadelphia gets better outcomes than you would have a right to expect, given what we spend. But no one talks about that, or not enough. Some people do, obviously. I mean, the campaign for fiscal equity, like, like Gary Orfield's my hero. But, um, but that's the other side of equity. Like the other side of equity is creating education. You know, Pam Moran and Ira Sokol, they talk about the idea that in wealthy districts, there's slack and abundance, right? 
and that kids can come to school and there's abundance and they can play and they have time. And in too many places in urban ed, there's this like, I mean, almost to Lillian's point earlier, like this hurry up, we've got to fill in, we've got to fill the gap, we've got to close the, it's this deficit model that creates unbelievable tension, unbelievable stress, and who wants to go to school in that? I think that's true. I remember once I was giving a talk about a community was building a school and somehow I got roped in to talk about what kind of space or 21st century design or something. And, you know, someone got up and said, like, can you prove to me that if the space is more open and there are more windows, like test scores will go up. And I, I said, I, I can't demonstrate that to you, like beyond a shadow of a doubt, but you know, I can tell you that these children are human beings and that like their lives will be better if there's light streaming into their space than if not, like, you know, you don't need to justify it on, on some other kind of consequentialist uh, ground. So I, I agree with you there. Joel, and, and suburban I, schools and suburban schools don't ask those questions, right? Like that's the amazing thing. Like you go to, you know, you go to some of these beautiful buildings that are getting built in some of these other spaces. Certainly if you go to private independent schools, they really aren't getting asked those questions. But like when we redesigned our space, you know, and we just moved into our new building, you know, the number of conversations we had to have around like, we are creating social spaces. We are creating spaces for kids to be kids. We are creating spaces where kids can, um, where there is slack and kids can hang. And we wanted you to walk in and feel comfortable. We wanted you to walk in immediately and feel good. And we wanted those to be spaces all over the place. I'm wondering if how either of you are connecting up your, your thinking around equity, that you, this is a bit of a Joel made a question, and Joel, I'm going to include you in this as well, how, how you might be connecting up your thinking around equity and how that is impacting your thinking on assessment. I always want to score high enough on the test scores that they leave me alone. I mean, is that the most sort of pragmatic way I can say that? Like, I just like, when it comes to the standardized things, I want to, I want to do well enough that, that no one can bug us and, and we use it. And I, and I'll be, again, like, this is a little bit of a thing, but like, number one, I, I in a reading rich curriculum, I, I think you can, this stuff does, can show up decently on a reading test. And, I, and I'm not, I, that being said, like the day the standardized tests go away, I will dance first off. But we also look at it as like, it's funny because SLA as the sort of, at this point in time, we're kind of an old head in the Philly, in this wave of the progressive schools in Philadelphia. And we take it as a challenge. Like we are like, we understand that lots of kids in Philadelphia don't have schools that allow kids the kind of um, space and freedom and intellectual freedom mostly um, and care that we try to do. And we know that lots of kids are in schools that are not SLA. And what we say is when it comes to the standardized tests, it's important to take them seriously because if we do well, others get to follow where we are. Others get to do this. And if we fail, others fail. And, and so for us as, you know, we're a magnet school and all of that. And so for us, it's like, 
you take this seriously so we can prove it because because we are the proof point. And for me, that's a justice issue, right? Like, and I don't, and I, and like when kids are like, well, how do you do it? And I'm like, yeah, because we want more kids to be able to do what you do. We want more kids to have the opportunity. And we also, we also go to the state and protest. We also say these, you know, like we do all of the other stuff to try to dismantle the system, but we also say, as long as this is the coin of the realm, we've got to prove, we've got to prove that our learning shows up there. So that way others can go there. Lillian, what do you think? I think that there's many layers to that question. I think that first and foremost, to quote Rob Reardon again, right? I think the most important assessment for us is dialogical. And that because ultimately, like for the time of year that is most sacred in our community are our semester and presentations of learning. And those are the moments when students are most reflecting on where have I come from? How far have I come? And where do I still need to stretch and grow? And, and those are the moments when I think you get the most movement for growth when the stakeholders in that student's life are really all deeply tuned in um, to celebrating like how much each kid has, has come, how far they've come individually, but then also really taking a clear eye towards where they still need to grow. And I think that, you know, that's always the most powerful. Um, but, but in terms of kind of the larger standardized assessments, right, I think that it's more a reflective tool for us to continue to reflect on, like, is what we're doing working in these different ways, right? Like, obviously, that's not, you know, agency, as what Chris was saying earlier, is one of the primary drivers for why we do project-based learning. But we also believe, if done really well, that it's also an opportunity to really grow kids' skills, right? And so I think that for us, the those other kind of more standardized assessments are a way for us to continue thinking about is what we're doing working? Are there other ways we can be really thinking about how we're bringing together, you know, how we're growing reading and writing and research skills within these really rich, like, you know, purpose-driven projects that we're doing, right? So it's one piece of the puzzle, but certainly it's not our primary driver. Lillian gave a better answer. I'm actually, if you don't mind, I'd love to ask Lillian a question. So I've always found that, like, the, the reading assessments tell me more than the math assessments do. I struggle because I feel like authentic inquiry-driven math looks so different than traditional math instruction that there's, there's a translation gap with the math scores more so than the reading scores. Do you find that to be the case in your school as well? Yeah, I'm right there with you. I mean, I think so much of what the our math model is really complex instruction and a lot of the Joe Bowler um, heterogeneous grouping work, right? And so, so much of that is about building mathematical mindsets, getting students to see multiple ways of getting to an answer, and then being able to be in dialogue and collaboration around that, right? How much of that translates into the standardized test? Less so, right? That said, I do think the standard, you know, it, it's a push for us to think about um, how we marry together, like those pieces that we really value and the fluency pieces, right? And I don't think we're there yet. And I think um, that's something that we are very much conscious of and continuing to really grapple with. But definitely, I do think that it doesn't get at the multidimensionality of what we're after in terms of inquiry-driven math. And also, I think sometimes just the sheer way it's presented doesn't look the same, right? Like, I think that's like, so part of it is one of the things that we've tried to do is teach kids, you know, to the sort of Harvey Daniels ideal that everything is a text to be read. And how do you read a test? So we actually do some work around like, we'll take a look at, at tests 
and treat them as an inquiry project and like like take it apart. What do you see? What do you notice? What are the ways that how are these tests constructed and how can you read a test? Um, so that way you know what you're looking at because it's very different than um, you know than the way we assess the rest of the time um, or much of the rest of the time. One phrase that stuck with me recently is hold data lightly. Uh, I mean, I think the way that Lillian is talking about it is, you know, like that's kind of the way that scientists work and the way that organizational leaders and learning organizations work. Like you gather a variety of sources of evidence and you try to figure out what's happening and what of your trying is working and how would you know and then you keep, you know, adjusting things, trying to figure out um, what will make it go. And I feel like in American education, like it's it's become like we're working for the data instead of the data is working for us. Um, and so I think there's a sort of culture to speak of your mentor, Rob Rorden. I think, you know, his title at High Tech High was Emperor of Rigor. Uh, and I think, you know, there's sort of a just culture of inquiry and reflection kind of uh, piece, which I also think connects to the point that Chris made before about abundance. It's it's a lot easier to do that if people are not threatening to shut you down tomorrow and you have a little bit of space and room to think and you can think in a more multidimensional way uh, and so forth. Rob, my thought on your assessment question is just that we're in our infancy in thinking about how one could possibly uh, assess learning in different ways. And it's just sort of so restrictively myopic and unidimensional when the ways in which kids are performing is so varied and multidimensional. Um, and if we wanted to, you know, like kids submit performance rec recordings to, you know, music studios like Juilliard or Oberlin, or they submit you know, uh, tapes of them playing when they want sports scholarships. Like it's, it's perfectly possible to measure things or in a variety of different domains, even in a high stakes way, if we really uh, desire to do that in ways that would be consistent with what those domains uh, are trying to produce. And then we could also have the kind of formative process oriented learning that Lillian was talking about, which often is the most powerful learning when a student reflects on, well, I thought I was going to set out to do this, but we didn't start till too late. So then it didn't come together the way that we wanted to. But next time, like, we're really going to, you know, put it together a different way. Like, I've seen kids give those kinds of talks in front of their parents. And, you know, that's, that's a really big moment in a kid's life. And it really can push forward a lot of learning and growth. I thought it was interesting when I've asked that question up here. It, it tends to be more about classroom-based assessments and um, demonstrations of learning and, and, and those kinds of things. And maybe it's the lack of, or a, a different level of focus on standardized assessment up here north of the border, perhaps, but interesting. And there's, and there's lots of work to be done in that area for sure. Yeah. And I think that we do a lot of work around, I mean, I can talk all day long about like, how do you build a culture of common language of assessment right because uh in a project-based school such that kids don't get lost in the spaces between adults right so we have a school-wide rubric that every major project is graded on 
And it's the design of the project, the knowledge displayed, the application of that knowledge, the presentation of the project and the process you followed. And each of those categories are worth 20 points. 20 times five is 100. It turns into a grade that the district and parents and kids and everybody understands, right? Um, but less important than the number is the categories. Did you exceed expectations? Did you meet expectations? Did you approach expectations? You know, more important is the way that the teachers and the students dialogue about what design means in this project. What does a set, what does um, uh, uh, knowledge, you know, what does application mean? What all of those things. And, and then how those, how teachers work together. So that way there is a culture, there's a language of assessment that is common and that kids can get good at, right? So that's really powerful because it gives kids a language to be able to, to do what a good assessment should do, which is reflect, right? Create the conditions for reflection and shared reflection. And by having that common, rubric and by working on it and getting good at using it as a community there's no rabbit right there's no rabbit getting pulled out of a hat this is transparent and and it's dialogue and you know again to Lillian it's dialogic right like um and that's all really really important well we're going to take uh, both of you now to a different place uh enough of reflection we're going to the uh, short snapper lightning round um, and we have uh, three questions we'll ask for each of you. Um, and you have like uh, 30 seconds to respond. Short snapper. What's one thing in education that most people think is right that you think is wrong? Chris. The sequence of mathematics. The, the idea that calculus is the highest math we should do. Statistics should be the math that all students learn because then you are less likely to be lied to. Lillian, what's something that in education that you that most people think is right that you think is wrong? I'm terrible at these lightning pieces because I'm reflective. I'm a verbal processor. And so I always need lots of time. But anyway, I guess, you know, that there's just really kind of like a set number of paths towards success, right? Ultimately. And it's really, I think it's unlimited. Joel, I'm going to ask you the same question. Jesus, Rod. Completely unprepared. <laughs> um, that schooling is the place for learning. Um, there are lots of places for learning, and schooling is just one of them. And to the degree that schooling succeeds, it be it's because it copies the traditions of learning that exist not in school, like coaching arts, athletics, dance, rhetoric, etc. All the things that have been developed outside of school. M minus two for length. Um, com <laughs> com complete this, complete this stem. I used to think, but now I think. Something have changed your mind about. I used to think, but now I think. Well, Lillian, I'm going to look to you first because we picked on Chris first last time. You know, Lillian, just to give you a second to stall, I feel like this, the fact that you're struggling with these is just making everybody listening feel better yeah. because your, your answers were so cogent to everything that we talked about. Like people out there are probably thinking like, I, I just am never going to be like that. So 
you know, needing a few seconds to process is probably appreciated. I can jump in for the land if she needs it. Sure, go ahead, Chris. So I never understood my colleagues who retired early, right? Who, Who retired when they could, which is 55. I'm 50. I've been the principal of my school for 16 years. I understand. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm not saying that I will, but I, this job after 16 years takes a lot. And I I never understood those folks. I thought this, I I still think this is the greatest job in the world, but it, it wears on you after a while. Joel or Lillian? Lillian. I think I used to think that school leadership was about structures and systems. Mm. And I think now I really know it's about relationships and grace. Beautiful. That was worth waiting for. Again, she had the better answer. That's fine. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Detecting a theme. Plus two, plus two to plus two to Lillian. I'm good. Yeah. <laughs> um Joel's losing though. Let's just say that. Not a competition, Chris. All right. Um, I used to think, I thought for a brief period that I kind of believed the TFA charter school hype, that there were like young whippersnapper teachers who were amazing, and that there were all these sort of older teachers who were less kind of motivated. And now I think that you know, most of the kind of most of the best teachers I've met are at least 40 and have had some time to really process and think about their uh, work. I want to unpack that just for the record, like that's not fair because to throw that out there as your, I used to, like, I now have questions, right? Like, because (laughs) how did, well, how did you ever think that um and yeah so we're trying to model vulnerability here chris if you can't share anything that yeah uh, no i think it's interesting but i mean like that's a really like again that's a hard one to throw out there it's just like i used to think right like i think a lot of and i so number one i never discount the fact that i'm the son of a union lawyer and a teacher right like and that's that was formative to how I see the world. Um, but I also think that what you see, you know, is, you know, and, and I've seen amazing, I have amazing 20 something teachers. I have amazing 40 and 50 something teachers. And I don't think there's one answer to that. I think the hard part is that I don't have the fastball that I had, right? Like I, I can't, grind until 2 a.m. every night anymore. And I think that TFA and Charter, their model was churn. And I had a charter school leader who I respect greatly, who I disagree with on a lot of issues, but is a dear friend of mine, say to me once, our model works as long as there is an endless stream of 22-year-olds in TFA. And I think that, you know, to the ethic of care, and why we always viewed that as important, you can't view teachers as replaceable unless, you, you know, and, and then and view children as essential. It's just that simple. Amen. Um, yeah. Cheers. And I'm sorry, Joel, that counts towards your time. Um, 
And so How you're possible. You're, you're minus 500. It was your, it was still part of your, your response. So <laughs> you're really going to have to dig deep in the double, double jeopardy around here. Jeez. All right. What's the last question? Okay. Doc? Question three, what field or domain outside of education should we look to for inspiration? What's worth emulating or, and, and why? 50 points for anyone who says circuses. 200 years ago, I would have been a rabbi. Looking at the places that see the sacredness of the human experience um, and that view that and own that, that to me is, is where we should look. Um, anywhere that views the human experience as sacred. 10 points. <laughs> Lillian. So, yeah, I was going to say gardening. So I am totally a pandemic gardener. Just discovered that for the first time this year. And I have just been floored by how much I've learned from, from having this new hobby. And I'm not somebody who's ever had hobbies, really. Um, and so I think that like just thinking, going back to the equity question, right? It's about joy. It's about wonder. It's about delight. And I think it's also no, no year, your garden from year to year is never the same. So that's endless surprises from year to year. And there's joy to be found and, and beauty to be found in every single plant that you cultivate, right? So I just, there've been so many resonances for me between gardening and the work that we do as educators and, and it is sacred. Beautiful, 15 really points. should have let Lillian go last. Um, I, was gonna say, I was gonna say the, the arts, uh, any of the arts, but I'll go with the, um, with, uh, let's go with painting, say, um, just the way in which, you know, you don't learn the arts by taking art history. You learn the arts by trying to draw and make something and then trying again and again and again. And, uh, it's just so natural in so many domains and it's just not clear to me why that isn't the kind of natural way we think about school. Well done, Joel. You you pulled it out at the end. That's that's perfect. And 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 Lillian just made me think a a, a couch and elder here that Joel's had the pleasure of meeting that worked with our deeper learning group uh, named Tusilam. Um, he he speaks about the speckum, the um, children are are young flowers, and he he speaks of children as young flowers, and and our job is to, um, if not garden, at least to steward and 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 um, and nurture. Uh, our, our, our speckum. And that's, uh, I think just a beautiful sentiment. We have come to the end of our time. Whew. That was a good one. Joel, are you as tired as I am? I am. And a, a little distraught that I did not, uh, score the requisite <laughs> number of purple people eaters or whatever kind of points were given out here. Well, well, luckily you'll have a chance again next week. Uh, see if you can redeem yourself. Right. Jal didn't know that this had devolved into like an episode of like, whose line is it anyway? Right. Like, I think that, you know, I did not know that. Uh, Chris and uh, Lillian just want to thank you so much for uh, spending time with us and, and our listeners and uh, such thoughtful answers to, to questions and a willingness to really engage in a, in a, in a, in a great and deep conversation. So really uh, want to thank you for, uh, for your thoughtful, thoughtful answers. I'm Rod Allen. And I'm Jal Maida. And this is Free Range Humans, a place where we consider how to make schools fit for human consumption. <laughs>